a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Man, oh man. I'm just looking at the calendar real quick. I'm sorry, I got to geek out for a second. Every time I think that uh, time couldn't go any faster, it does. So we're going to turn the page on another calendar next time we talk. It'll be October. And uh, I just, I got to tell you, thank you, first of all, for uh, for tuning in this show. Now, this may be your first time. You might be just like, okay, I wanted to hear uh, what this guy's all about. And hopefully I don't scare you away within the first couple of minutes. But if you're just dialing it up for the first time to see what it's all about, I'm going to ask you, please uh, keep an open mind. I'm not, uh, not going to require anybody to agree with what I say. But my goal, as always, is to inspire people to think more clearly, to think a little more deeply about what's going on. Not because I have the answers and therefore you should believe everything I say. I don't think you should. I think you should question everything that I say and everything you hear or read or see elsewhere. My reasoning for this is I believe that there are people out there who are sincerely looking for truth. I think you're one of those people. And while I don't claim to be the fountain of truth, I do my very best to find and share uh, truthful commentary on a day-to-day basis and, and something that will help you better understand the world, but also better understand what you can do to improve the world in a way that is unique to you. I know it sounds very idealistic, but I believe that every single one of us has a purpose, a, a mission that is ours alone. Nobody can fulfill it like we can. And it's going to be different for, for everybody. Some people have a, have a marvelous way with words. And that's how they can actually impact the world and, and affect change. Some people have the ability to recognize, you know, needs in other people and, and to, to be there and to, to succor them, you know, in ways of, you know, healing them or just being a friend or whatever. It can take a million different forms. You know, I think, I think it was best explained to me, you know, how are you going to change the world? Are you going to liberate the captives, educate the ignorant, heal the sick, feed the hungry? create beauty, all of those things contribute toward it being a better world, but they all start with individuals who found something inside themselves. So with that in mind, I'm encouraging you, think about, to, think about what you might be able to do. In fact, we're going to actually spend a little bit of time talking about how to develop you know, that, that sense of, well, who am I and what can I do uh, a little bit later on in the show. Got a great article here about finding space for silence and how that helps us better understand ourselves as well as the world around us. But in the meantime, I'm going to dive into some kind of meaty topics here right off the bat. If, if you're new to the show, I don't talk about politics a lot because it tends to get really caught up in, in personalities as opposed to principles. I want, to, I want things to be very principle-based because I think that's what it all rests on, right? Personalities come and go. Principles are what either give you a strong foundation to stand on or will leave you swinging in the breeze when you abandon them. So with just a little over a year to go before the 2024 general election, 
I'm interested and I'm paying attention, but I'm not giving a lot of my moral energy or attention to the uh, election. Although I will admit, I have a sense that things are going to get very, very spicy or could get very spicy here in the U.S. between now and then. Karen Kwiatkowski is uh, an author, she's a writer actually that has been a contributor to LouRockwell.com, which it's, it's a news aggregator site that I've been visiting for, well, well over two decades. And she's got a really interesting take. I think that she is onto something here, just a theory about what we might see come next year. And I don't share this with you as, oh, you better hang on every word and you better believe everything she says. I'm just saying, she's pretty good at adding things up and this could be a very interesting possibility. So, this is her Gromyko theory. Now, she says, Senator Ted Cruz says that Michelle Obama may step in to the role of unifier for the sad, sad Democratic Party. She certainly has picked up the pace of pocket lining in the traditional Clinton-Obama way. So, she says, if Ted Cruz can make a prediction, then I hope I can be forgiven for this one. She says, I think Hillary Clinton awaits her second chance. And like CIA mouthpiece David Ignatius She doesn't want Kamala to be the first woman king. Now, Karen Kwiatkowski says, I mentioned this to a like-minded friend who was horrified. We agreed. Everyone we know hates Hillary. But Hillary, with her new campaign hairstyle and possibly running with a healthy, younger-looking super lefty like Gavin Newsom, may be required to guarantee a Democratic win 13 months from now. Now, she says, look, Hillary's not popular. Neither are the Democrats. No amount of advanced cheating, corporate-funded and media-promulgated lies, ballot harvests and dumps, and middle-of-the-night vote-counting system resets can give the Democrats a win in 2024. So how do they prevail? Well, they'll prevail the same way that they almost won in 2016, the way they did win in 2020 with Joe Biden as presidential placeholder. Hillary is, like Joe was, the pro-war, pro-state, pro-vaccine, uniparty choice, and she will have the silent yet reliable support of the significant GOP fifth column. And she links to an article that describes some of the ones who you'll see um, that were, were fighting so hard against Trump. Now, the uniparty plan was and remains to keep Trump off the ballots so red state voters and others can't choose him. For a decade, the anti-Trump strategy has been the same. Harass, minimize, gaslight, ridicule, and sanction the orange man and his supporters and drive disgusted establishment Republicans to vote Democratic or stay home. Now, the second uniparty objective, beyond his total destruction, is to goad Trump into saying something that costs him his base. And so far, this strategy has backfired. Every establishment taunt and test seemed to help the Trump campaign with pro-Trump rap videos and popular campaign material featuring his latest mugshot. By the way, after that mugshot, do you realize Trump today runs 10 points ahead of Biden, according to the Washington Post's own polling? That's got a sting. Hillary recently warned Joe Biden that third parties will cause a Democrat loss, just like, she says, Green Party Jill Stein stole her victory in 2016. She's also warning about more Russian election interference because Putin fears her. Or so she says. She's dog-whistling to the old guard about her work with sponsor BlackRock and other elite movers and shakers to rebuild Ukraine through the Clinton Foundation. Now, Karen Kwiatkowski says, look, I suspect Hillary believes if the Democrat machine puts her forward, her age will be less of a problem than it was for Biden in 2020. And she will work harder than he ever did. 
New York and California speak for the Democratic Party and have more to lose if Trump or any conservative America first or anti-corruption ticket is elected. Now, key to this prediction, says Karen, is her belief that the U.S. is in its final stage, its last days. Now, she clarifies not end times of spiritual punishment and reward, but a major and exciting shift into decentralized power and populist-powered federalism. This is actually one of the more optimistic things I've read in a while. She says it's been recurring for a long time, largely under the radar, subterranean, and yet it's the reason for the reactionary surge in recent decades of the modern surveillance and warfare state. Armed federal bureaucracies and mass inflationary policies that deprive the populist masses of prosperity, property, and liberty. She says this kind of existential shift also happened in the former Soviet Union under the auspices of communist decay. In the mid-1980s, after the death of Brezhnev, a number of older, weak Soviet general secretaries, placeholders from the old system, tried to wring the last bits of relevancy and resources from a precarious and pre-collapsed USSR. Russians by that time had evolved to disbelieve, as a default position, each and every government narrative. Now her point is, we are where they were. D.C. and the gargantuan U.S. state is justifiably worried but like the former Soviet Union, it's locked into a failed model. She says, if Joe Biden is our demented and stumbling Chernyenko, then uh, Hillary is his successor, Andrei Gromyko. After Gromyko comes the guy who presides over the collapse and through accident, error, vision, or some combination of the three, presides over the end of the current experiment rather, and ushers in a new world. Now, in this role, the Soviet Union had Gorbachev a man still held in contempt by many in Russia because change in accountability and loss isn't easy and it usually hurts. So it's not clear who the U.S. will have in place when we usher in what comes next. But she says, my prediction stops with reliable Hillary, last of the old guard. Hillary, as our own Gromyko Fitz, politicians posited as someone who can lead, both sharing philosophies solidly welded to the past. Hillary promises to uphold the U.S.'s sole superpower, and like Gromyko, she distrusts the other. Gromyko was a trusted party leader, and Clinton, as the Democratic Party itself dies and fragments, has been a reliable standard bender of bearer rather of left statism and democratic totalitarianism. Karen Kwiatkowski says the U.S. system, the party system, that is, is in trouble, and we will see this played out powerfully next year. Hillary is more ruthlessly dedicated to state power than any other leader of the Uniparty. And this fact is being increasingly telegraphed throughout the American, I'm not sure what this acronym means, Mickey Matt, which is running out of time. I'm going to come back to Karen's commentary in just a few moments. I'm also going to look up what that Mickey Matt league means, rather, back in just a second. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I have been sharing a commentary from Karen Kwiatkowski, and it uh, it highlights a couple of uh, possibilities for next year. Namely, she is saying Hillary Clinton could very well be the one that they tap to step up, the Democratic Party taps to step up and run for president in 2024. And she makes it an interesting case. I'm not saying, boy, this is, this is absolutely what's going to happen, but it's definitely possible. Now, she used a term here that I was not familiar with, M-I-C-I-M-A-T-T. I looked it up. 
This is from the Urban Dictionary. It's an acronym for Military Military Industrial Congressional Intelligence Media Academic Think Tank Complex. M-I-C-I-M-A-T-T, Mickey Matt. So she says, that's, uh, that who is, that's who is being, sorry, it's being telegraphed throughout that complex that uh, Hillary is the one who is more dedicated to government power than the other candidates. In other words, she's the one who could be reliably trusted to hold the line on keeping them relevant. Now, she says, beyond this, We see the continuous and energetic suppression of critics of the corporate state. Tucker Carlson and everyone he interviews is or becomes a target of the state. We see structural suppression of all speech critical of favored government narratives unabated by the revelations of Twitter files and lessons learned from COVID or the Iraq war. Google, Meta, and Microsoft continue to ridiculously censor on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn while these companies simultaneously lobby to end TikTok in America because it's stealing our data. Really? Brings to mind a uh, sign on Ron Paul's desk. Don't steal. The government hates the competition. Karen Kwiatkowski says, I wasn't going to advance my Hillary as Gromyko theory publicly because it's nightmarish and, well, truly unthinkable, but she says, in driving back from Nashville a few days ago, I heard on the radio that the famous 2016 Clinton-Trump debate occurred on this day in history and that it was the most watched in most watched presidential debate. By the way, I'm, I'm remembering that because, uh, yeah, six years ago I was visiting my kids up in Alaska and that's where we watched it at a, at a sushi shop. <laughs> that's where we watched that debate. Well, NPR made a big deal about this happening on that day and other radio stations did as well, says Karen. Yet, if you visited many This Day in History sites on the internet, you won't easily find this factoid. But it was broadcast by state media corporations this week for a reason. The repeated mention of Hillary, who no one likes, is by design. That's a good catch, I think, on her part, on on Karen's part. She says, Hillary's not popular, but Democratic strategists know Trump, on a ballot or not, will divide the 60 to 70 percent of the vote that opposes war and interventionism, despises authoritarianism, and wants D.C. to shut up and pay us back for what it has stolen and wasted. Trump supporters know how to spell his name, and if he's not on the ballot, it doesn't equate to a vote for the nominated Republican. GOP leadership like Clinton and the military-industrial complex, uh, blah, 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 is uh, welded to the past. Democratic strategists know their own biggest threat is the anti-intervention, pro-America, anti-corruption candidate Bobby Kennedy Jr., and he's attracting alarming levels of support from the left, right, and everyone else. Now, tellingly, the generation that has suffered the most from the modern monetary theory warfare welfare state really likes RFK Jr. a lot. She says Gen Xers will inherit whatever is left of boomer wealth, along with the massive U.S. federal debt, default, stagflation, and possible war, and they know it. There are 65 million of them, all relatively healthy and hardworking, and everyone repeatedly betrayed by government promises all their lives. So a three- or four-way race for the presidency, one divided generationally, geographically, and ideologically, reminds her of the last time we got a Clinton in the White House, and then as now, it was the only way a Clinton could be elected. It also reminds us of the last time we had a serious four-way race with a large party experiencing its own destruction and rebirth in 1860. Ooh, that's a little ominous. Karen Kwiatkowski says, what came after Bill Clinton's election were small wars overseas, limits on federal spending, and saxophones. 
After Lincoln's 1860 election, our divided, angry nation blew up with other countries choosing sides and sending aid to the American combatants on both sides. If and when another such fight starts here, we will receive little sympathy from the rest of the world. Perhaps they'll send bits of aid and chat over cocktails about a world made better as we fight to the last American. If history rhymes, and some say it does, we will have our own Gromyko in 2025. Soon after and sooner, in many, in, sooner than many think, we'll watch our country and also the world decentralize in powerful ways that the angry mutterers in both parties cannot understand. Entropy comes from the Greek entropia, meaning a turning towards transformation. And Karen says it's coming to America, and that's not a theory. Now, again, hopefully you don't feel too uh, too bombarded by partisan rhetoric here. I think she does a very good job of keeping this out of the realm of partisan politics. But that is an interesting possibility, don't you think? I'm all for decentralization. And frankly, I, I think this is, is going to be the answer. Um, just had a very heart-to-heart talk with my son last night. He's getting ready to uh, fly out to Germany where he'll be continuing his uh, postgraduate education. Bright, bright young man. Um, and, and he and I, I, I'm grateful for this. He and I don't see eye to eye on, on a number of issues. And that's good because I, I want him to be an independent thinker. And and it's it's good in the sense that I don't want him just to be, well, dad thought this or dad voted this way and that's the way I should do it. No. I want him to, to contemplate these kind of things for himself. But we spent some time last night as we we're talking about, you know, what's, uh, what is coming and what, uh, what can we expect? And regardless of the fact that he and I may not uh, line up perfectly on, on certain issues, that's okay. Because the one place where we do line up is neither one of us feels like the people in power are being honest with us. And if we can find that common ground, you know, everything else can be worked out. Besides the fact that politics really, it should never be so important that it trumps family relationships or friendships or, or other even casual acquaintances. And yet we let it. You ever wonder why that is? I'm just going to throw this out. It's almost like we're being artificially kept divided. So I'll have a link to Karen Kwiatkowski's article. It's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are notes for September 29th, 2023. I want to move on here. When I say the word globalism, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear that? You know, John Bircher's, whoop, there goes the knee. It jerks. <laughs> it's right. Ah, globalists. No, they've, they've been in that uh, battle for a long, long time. So they've, they've earned the right to, to have a reaction to it. But for a lot of us, it, it kind of comes off as, well, well, I don't know, man. Is globalism, is it some kind of a conspiracy? Is it, is it something good? Is it, you know, I want to buy the world a Coke and, you know, perfect harmony and all this kind of thing? Probably not. But what we have seen playing out, particularly in the last couple of generations, is a move to consolidate power and influence at the global level. Now, the World Economic Forum is a really good example of this. And it's no surprise that a lot of the suffering and a lot of the, the really egregious authoritarianism that we experienced during the COVID pandemic came from global influencers or came at the behest of those global influencers. I've got an article here from J.B. Shirk from uh, AmericanThinker.com. Globalism must be destroyed. Now, when you hear that, if you're thinking, oh, he's just, you know, some foaming at the mouth, you know, reactionary, I want you to hear what he has to say. This is actually one of the better explanations of globalism, rather, 
including what it is, but also why it needs to be destroyed, why it cannot coexist with people who have uh, self-determination and autonomy. Now, he starts by pointing out that Americans are pessimistic about the future. They also view past decades more favorably than they do the present one. The land of opportunity is gone. The American dream is gone. What remains is a fading memory of what America used to be without an underlying promise that its erstwhile preeminence can be restored. And by the way, he says that pessimism is not peculiar to those living inside the United States. In fact, he says a growing body of research shows that national populations around the world are depressed about the future. Billions of smartphones exponentially multiplying digital entertainments and social media platforms connecting millions each minute are evidently not creating sufficient conditions for human optimism or happiness. All right, I'm going to leave that as kind of the teaser because we've got to take a very quick break. We'll be back just the other side of this break with J.B. Shirk's article. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not going to say it's a requirement, so get over there and subscribe, but... You'll find some really good, interesting material, uh, some great reading material that you can dive deeper into any of the topics that we discuss, or you may want to learn about some of the guests we have on the show. Go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on show notes. There's a subscribe button down at the bottom of the page. And uh, again, you'll find plenty of good information for your consideration. What you do with that information, of course, is up to you. So going back to this article from J.B. Shirk, Globalism Must Be Destroyed. He says, diagnosing why 8 billion people are miserable is no easy task, but there is an obvious culprit that has surely contributed to our global malaise. Globalism, as the increasingly dominant governing philosophy, if not pseudo-religion, of the planet, is inherently antagonistic to both individual self-determination and natural bonds formed within families and tribes. He says, when every human is encouraged, if not mandated, to act strictly for the common good of the global population, then those preferences that advance an an individual's, families, or nation's unique interests must be undermined. Now, powerful institutions as varied as the United Nations, World Economic Forum, BlackRock, and even the Vatican all demand an essentially borderless world in which the peoples of any nation are encouraged to migrate freely into others. Decades of mass migration, particularly in the West, have resulted in not only an explosion of ethnic enclaves existing somewhat autonomously inside host nation-states, but also the fracturing of common civic bonds that once loosely united those nation's native peoples. So when citizens or political parties have fought back against policies of uncontrolled immigration, globalist-minded authorities have been quick to demonize their own citizens as racists, xenophobes, or more recently, purveyors of hate. Even more devastating for affiliated populations, assimilation is now scorned. Rather than encouraging new residents to adopt the language, customs, and traditions of their adoptive land, governments have chosen to prioritize the cultural identities of recent transplants over the historic identities of the nation-states they now call home. Nationalism is derisively equated with the worst atrocities of last century's German Nazism or Italian fascism while its Enlightenment Age achievements in organizing similar peoples into self-sustaining regions peaceful enough to encourage technological innovation, economic growth, and relative political stability are entirely ignored. 
He says Westerners are browbeaten with globalism's sister philosophies of multiculturalism and diversity for diversity's sake. To the point of even declaring oneself, or that even declaring oneself a proud Englishman, Dutchman, German, or heaven fulfilled Russian can quickly lead to the offender being branded as a racist who must be retrained to reject hate. So he says, is it any wonder then why the Olympic Games are waning in popularity when Westerners are regularly, regularly conditioned to believe that love for one's nation must be expunged from the human race? Even more fundamental than membership in national tribes that foster meaning and identity is the familial tribe that gives humans a natural support network for dealing with the dangers of the outside world. Parents, siblings, and immediate relatives provide young family members with skills and knowledge to navigate life's wilderness. The bonds of kinship reinforce instinctual drives to protect and strengthen the group. Families maintain organic divisions of labor and a shared sense of duty that instill innate purpose within each member. Globalism and state supremacy, on the other hand, are diametrically opposed to the family. By elevating a loyalty to the common good and the state's expertise over private decision-making of families, the state has weakened the most natural engine for creating and sustaining a human being's identity and purpose. He says government agents now insert themselves between parents and their children in matters as personal as religious conviction, sexual morality, and psychological well-being. Should parents reject any of the state's radical ideologies, such as transgenderism, their natural rights as parents are threatened. Just as during China's Cultural Revolution, Western governments now dominate the family's private sphere. It is this form of government superiority, intolerant of kinship traditions and hostile to personal agency, that actually birthed last century's totalitarian regimes. What distinguishes our present era is that globalist authorities seek citizens' absolute obedience not only to their national governments, but also to the pantheon of globalist gods to whom those governments claim to pray. People are ordered to obey in the name of COVID, climate change, democracy, fighting hate, or any other deity that the state produces for the public supplication. People who worship these false gods are rewarded with government-sanctioned atonement, those who refuse are punished as heretics. No matter how faithfully the converts publicly devote themselves to the globalist theory, though, they truly serve only the small class of oligarchs who use their quasi-divine authority to amass greater wealth and power for themselves. Good parents will sacrifice themselves for their children. They're not inclined to watch their children be butchered and brainwashed. Warriors will sacrifice themselves when their communities come under attack. They're not inclined to die for pretentious pronouns and carbon emissions. As relentless as the state's propaganda continues to be, no centered person sees the government as family or wants to fight a war for globalism. The more the state insists that people act against their natures, the more people become aware that they must reject the authority of the state. The prospect of imminent conflict breeds deep pessimism about the future. I'm just going to pause for a second here and say, you might disagree about some particulars that uh, J.B. Shirk has, has been sharing here, but that last couple of paragraphs really have, a, have a, a ping of truth to them. Now, he says, in my experience, human suffering arises when people feel that they have no control over their own lives. And he says that suffering can often be stemmed when they seek some kind of relationship with God, take personal responsibility for their own actions, use their labor to create something of their own, and openly express their thoughts. 
Now, this journey toward happiness requires the individual to do the heavy lifting, but it also empowers the mind to create and think freely. Humans who confidently accept their own agency inside a world not of their making eventually find peace. How do you create happy societies, he asks? The answer is encourage citizens to embrace God, private property, and free speech. Now, globalism does just the opposite. It requires total dependency on government. When COVID struck, the state closed churches, bankrupted small businesses, and silenced dissent. The cult of climate change insists that you own nothing, produce nothing, and pray to Mother Earth. The state's preposterous war on disinformation and hate seeks to enslave the mind and criminalize thoughts. And the individual is expected to make all these sacrifices for the glory of the multicultural, inclusive, equitable, green, energy-obsessed globalist state. Unsurprisingly, most humans have no interest in praying at the Church of the United Nations or obeying the World Health Organization's coercive mandates as if they were the Ten Commandments. He says globalism can succeed only in a terribly pessimistic world. It thrives on racism. It depends upon an apocalyptic vision of a dying planet. It needs to divide people against one another so that they are too busy to unite and resist those who cause them actual harm. Under globalist government, happiness is smothered with misery, fear, and hate. Now, J.B. Shirk reminds us, even in humanity's darkest hours, optimism has prevailed. After World War I, Americans fell in love with the automobile. After World War II, Americans bought homes and televisions. During the Vietnam War, Americans put a man on the moon. Now globalists, globalists push public transportation in small apartments. Televisions are just instruments for state propaganda. And American astronauts have spent the last 50 years orbiting Earth. After two decades of war, this generation's warriors return home to find the Patriot Act used against them. The government claiming ownership over their children, unaffordable gasoline, and the prospect of renting for life. Globalism is where optimism goes to die. Happiness will require its demolition. See, suddenly that doesn't sound like such a radical take, now does it? Now, for those who are hearing this and thinking, well, but what's, you know, what are we supposed to do? We're we supposed to pick up guns and, you know, go fight in the streets? That's not what I hear him calling for. I think that this is a call to build what comes next. Now, I haven't spent a great deal of time, and maybe I need to spend a little more time personally, uh, delving into the idea of the parallel economies, parallel institutions. I definitely keep an eye on it, but I haven't uh, taken a deep dive into it on this show. But I believe that that is where we are likely to find the greatest sense of happiness and accomplishment and, and a sense of a way forward that doesn't involve, you know, greater conflict and, you know, uh, basically, you know, we're going to have to go butt heads with Leviathan if we're going to get anywhere. See, I agree with this young Frenchman from back in the 1500s, a guy by the name of Etienne Delaboite. Wrote an essay about, uh, it's actually a discourse on uh, voluntary servitude. And the point that he makes that uh, has resounded throughout the last few hundred years is simply this. By our consent, we allow these institutions, these organizations, these schools of thought to have power over us. The point being, when we withdraw our consent, and you can peacefully withdraw consent, their power goes away, or at least their power over us. 
I think the key to withdrawing that consent, though, is we need to build some kind of parallel system before we do so. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today. By the way, I want to clarify my last statement as I ended the last segment there. I don't think we need to have all the structure in place before we withdraw consent from the systems that are trying to rule our lives and deny us our natural rights. I just want to make clear, it's going to be easier to do so, though, when you have a system to work within, when you have something to turn to. And I'll I'll use the example of homeschooling, right? Um, If you look at the public school system, and I'm just speaking in very general terms, but if you say, wow, there is so much woke nonsense that has found its way in and is being openly, you know, directed to these kids, uh, proselytized to our children, I want to get my kids out of there. You know, for a person who hasn't considered some of the alternatives, whether it be private school or micro schools or um, uh, there's so many different alternatives, homeschooling for that matter. It may seem like, well, what do I do? Do I just I pull my kids out of school? Suddenly I'm doing uh, educational neglect. Truancy laws are going to come take my kids away from me and put me in jail. This is why having a parallel system or something on which you can fall back makes it easier to withdraw that consent. You're not just left swinging in the breeze when you step away from Leviathan and what Leviathan has to offer. And we need to be building these institutions and, and economies in, in as many different places as possible. Farmer's markets, right? I mean, look, I love the convenience of being able to go to Costco or go to the grocery store. I love the variety that we can still find there. It's all getting more expensive, but, you know, the variety is still there. But we're also very dependent upon a very uh, increasingly globalist food production system and distribution system. And, uh, and I don't think very many people realize how easy it would be for that system to break down or to be controlled in such a way that suddenly your access to food is dependent on, well, are you uh, being a good little boy or girl? Are you maintaining pure ideological thoughts? So that's, uh, that's where farmers markets and community-supported agriculture you know, can help fill that gap. I'd like to see, you know, more development of, of medical self-sufficiency, parallel systems to the medical establishment. In fact, the article of the day that I would like you to consider, this is in my show notes, is, is asking and answering the question, has medicine unwittingly become the willing servant of an unholy trinity of big pharma, big tech, and big government? Ryan Gonering, I'm sorry, Russ Gonering is, I believe, an ophthalmologist, and researcher and clinician, he explains why medicine finds itself in the wilderness these days. And it's, I mean, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to to recognize this is a guy who has worked within the medical community for a long, long time. I think he said close to 40 years. But there's a problem. Big medicine, the medical establishment, is in bed with government, and it has not voted well for us. And, And if the last three years didn't teach anything about that, I don't know what would. You should really check out his article and see what you think. Now, I have another article I'd like to direct your attention to, and I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we've learned a lot about trusting experts over the last three years, haven't we? The experts have been wrong on so many things that it's it's very understandable if we're now skeptical. And that's that's actually a good thing. 
We've learned that experts really don't have this superpower that suddenly they know more and they, they can see farther and understand better what's best for us than we can understand for ourselves. So Ben Barty has a great piece on the 1600 climate experts who have signed a declaration calling out climate change as a hoax. Now, just because they've come out against climate change and called it a hoax, does that mean, well, these are experts we should believe? You know, no more so than you should believe, you know, the other experts saying, oh, no, climate change requires that you give more money and more power to the, to the government. But I think they have a point of view worth considering. Now, I do happen to agree with what they're saying. I think this is just opportunism written large, you know, for people in power. Why? Because the, the solutions that they proffer are very self-serving. But when you have 1,600 people whose expertise is in climate matters saying, hey, we don't agree, at the very least, now we can start to say, okay, so there is disagreement within the scientific community. It's not a matter of the science is settled. And from there, hopefully a productive discussion can take place. At any rate, here's the article that I would like to finish on. And this is one that I think should should hold some very powerful food for thought for those who are trying to find peace and trying to find some clarity in a tough and uh, and sometimes confusing world. Making space for silence. This is from Candace McManaman from intellectualtakeout.org. She says, in our lives of technology, distraction, and immediacy, silence is often lost. Our minds and bodies need some quiet time, some space to rest. Without this, we become burned out, stressed, and exhausted. But our lives are busy, and we have responsibilities, jobs, and families. How do we daily make room for silence? So here are some suggestions. By the way, some of these dovetail very nicely with what our friend uh, Jeffrey Einstein has been talking about with his, uh, you know, reclaiming our quality of life movement. Shut off technology. No matter how entertaining the show, educational the podcast, or calming the music, technology is constant white noise. We can't truly enjoy silence with our devices chattering away in the background, so try shutting them off. Yes, the absence of digital noise might at first stun us as we've gotten used to technology hovering around like an annoying pet. But until the pet is outside for a while, we can't truly enjoy the quiet. Secondly, she recommends go outside. Nature is our great haven of rest. I keep seeing this phrase, touch grass. And I think that's, that's actually good advice. Take off your shoes and touch grass. Where in our days can we pop outside to enjoy the fresh air, take in the view, or go for a brisk walk? She says, I like to take my toddler sons on a nearby bike trail whenever the weather allows. We get exercise, fresh air, quiet time. Indeed, there's something about going outside that leaves us refreshed and relaxed when we return to our daily tasks. Maybe we could all take more lunch breaks outside, walk or bike to work, or simply stand in our yards with the more, our morning coffee. Any outside time offers a grand opportunity for quiet. Here's another one. Eat alone. Now, she says, this is more for those of us who have scheduled meals in busy professional lives. Some of us work 40, or I'm sorry, 60 to 80 hours a week with busy family lives on top. And she says, I understand there's not much room for silence. A great option is to take our lunch or coffee break alone. And while it's tempting to work or hang out with coworkers right through this time, sometimes we need to give our brains rest. Use lunch break to do so. Bonus points if you can eat outside. Secondly, or next rather, she says, single task. Little ordinary tasks are gifts. 
doing the dishes, getting the mail, folding laundry, brushing our teeth, sweeping the floor. These offer us opportunities to take a break from informational noise and to reset with a calm, dull activity. If I could confess something right here, this isn't quiet necessarily, but I promise you I do my very best thinking when I'm mowing the lawn. There's something about just cutting a lawn that that inspires me to think more clearly. Now, it's not exactly quiet, but I, I still, I like her point here. Our minds need this respite. And sometimes we try to be productive by multitasking or more fun by adding music or media, but she says instead, let's single task. Let's focus on the ordinary job at hand, even if we're bored and have a million things to do, or think two minutes of quiet can't possibly make a difference. Sometimes, she says, all the silence I have in my day is brushing my teeth after the boys are in bed, so I'm going to savor it. Next, she says, create dedicated quiet time. We can study our days for patterns and pick up opportunities for mental rest. As in the great Christian tradition of Sunday rest, we can schedule dedicated silence and even plan where we spend this time. We've been designed to flourish with regular rest time every week, so let's get back to it. Yes, most of us can't spend a whole day in silence, but we can get creative with what we can do instead. Avoiding unnecessary work is traditional. She says we could also avoid unnecessary calls, television, or internet use. Next, she talks about pick up a silent activity. Candace says, I personally do very well with some silence in my day, but I don't do well with idleness. I simply have to do something with my hands in order to relax. We don't have to sit completely still to enjoy silence, as we can always choose activities that don't involve noise. For example, she says, I love drawing, painting and crocheting, walking, gardening, hiking, praying, biking. These are other popular options, so let's think about our hobbies and interests and consider whether these can be pursued in quiet ways. And finally, she says, fight distractions. When we're intentionally resting or being silent, our minds will inevitably be distracted. Change, even restful change, isn't easy. So to solve this, try to keep a brain dump handy. Now, this can be a handwritten list. It could be a note on your phone. Whatever works for you, just write down whatever's on your mind in your your to-do list or just randomly jumping through your head. Then you can settle into quiet time without the mulling on what you have to remember for later. By the way, this really does work. Of course, if anything seriously pressing occurs to you during quiet time, let yourself jot it down. We know the difference between a distraction and a responsibility. Her point is the more familiar we become with the quiet, the less distracted we'll feel and the more benefits we will reap. Learning to regularly calm our minds and bodies will help us clear our heads, calm our stress, and focus our attention. Silence in our lives will lead to peace and clarity. She says, don't let the modern culture of noise take that away. That is some very solid advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show.